this is something, again, that people don't really think about. But as leaders, we should be planning for it. We should be thinking through this and saying, okay, we're actually going to have to help people come out of their shell and feel more comfortable being exposed to other people, again, as long as it's scientifically safe and healthy Mm -hmm. to do that. But we may actually see new types of training just to help people (laughs) relearn how to hold each other's hand or not recoil when someone comes near them because we're very adaptive. (laughs) That's what we do. We're adapting to stay alive and to stay safe, but we're sort of maladapting to human social contact. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. As a leadership coach, I work inside organizations and I focus on helping leaders achieve their whole person potential and meaningfully contribute to their organization's mission. With this podcast, I share leadership best practices, developmental approaches, and stories of exemplary leaders. Hello, beautiful people. My heart is still warm from the conversation I just finished with Dr. Karen Sobolajewski. She is speaking to us today as a bona fide expert on the virtual workforce and on virtual distance. She's written three books on the topic. The latest is The Power of Virtual Distance, A Guide to Productivity and Happiness in the Age of Remote Work, which was released in April of 2020. This means it was already in production as COVID-19 began ravaging the world. Karen began her career in systems engineering and applied mathematics deep, deep in the world of computing. She said she's even built computers. She moved into the corporate world, spending 18 years as an executive on Wall Street. Our worlds now intersect. I bet you were wondering, how does her world intersect with your world? Our worlds intersect now because she could not ignore her curiosity and what she was noticing around the time we spend in front of screens and how this was impacting how we relate with each other. She was picking up on this in the early 2000s, even before the first smartphone was introduced in 2007. In fact, her first book came out in 2008 after her PhD dissertation. You can imagine that her expertise is in super high demand these days, given our extreme virtual distance. Although she began her work in computing and is very comfortable, in fact, expert with data and science, it's what she has to say about the human spirit that struck me the hardest. I got chills several times during our conversation. She talks about things that I care about, like the human spirit, open-heartedness, compassion, empathy, and even love. And she's having these conversations with some of the largest global corporations in the world. Enjoy having a front row seat to our conversation. And I really hope what you hear today sparks some of your own questions and some new awareness on how you're going to continue moving in this virtual world. Welcome to you all today. 
We are going to hear from a very interesting expert on virtual distance and human well-being, and I'm really excited about the conversation. This topic has never been more relevant as we come out of 2020 and into 2021, which will offer new possibilities, but no getting back to normal. We don't know what normal is going to be anymore. I first heard of Dr. Karen Sobel Ajeski's work from my previous interview about virtual workspaces. Karen is called on by some of the world's largest organizations to help them navigate our world of work as well as human well-being in the digital age and this pandemic era. Karen is the author of The Model for Virtual Distance and I think three books on virtual distance, which we'll talk about. Karen, I think that your trajectory into this world, this topic is so interesting. I was hoping that you could start there and just let us know how you became interested in this because your book, your latest book was actually published in April of 2020, which means Mm -hmm. that you had been working on it for quite some time. It's not something that you published after the pandemic hit and we were all in quarantine. So you've been working in this domain for a long time. And I think your story is so interesting. So I'm wondering if you could start there. Sure. Well, thanks, Leanne, for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And, um, Look forward to our conversation. So yeah, a lot of people ask about my background and it's a bit of a checkerboard past, if you will. So I I actually in college was a computer science and applied mathematics major. So I was a techie and those of you who can't see me would know that I kind of always have a propeller spinning over my head. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I used to build computers, like literally build them, etch something called logic gates onto the motherboards. I mean, I'd handle the actual hardware. I programmed them. I did a lot of system architecture work. And so when I graduated, I was actually an engineer. And I did a lot of system engineering and creating what many think is like the first precursor to modern day GPS systems. But then I got a little bit nudgy, as they say in New York. (laughs) And I wanted to be with other people, not kind of behind a a cubicle wall all the time. So I I went into sales of large computers, and then eventually I moved up into higher positions of strategic planning and so forth for a lot of major companies in New York City, mostly. Um, And in the late 90s, the early 2000s, when I was running North America for a large UK-based management and IT consultancy, I I just started to notice that people were treating each other a little bit differently than they had been, you know, 10 years prior in the early 90s, even though the technology back in the early 90s, late 80s was sticks and stones compared to what it was in 2000. Um, And this really just started to bother me. There was something about it that, that didn't sit well in my gut, really. It is the the way I put it. And so I thought to myself, as a system engineer, as someone who built these computers, as someone who programmed them, as someone who architected large scale systems, you know, wasn't I part of a group of people who were responsible for not only getting this stuff out there, but also 
making sure it was sort of doing good. And if there were unintended consequences to social behavior as a result of these boxes, then, you know, I wanted to find out. And I wanted to find out that if there was something happening, because we had shifted so much of our communication to the box, basically, Hmm. was there a way to identify it, name it, and importantly, measure it? Because I knew that if I discovered something that was there that was affecting other outcomes that executives cared about, they'd want data (laughs) because that's what we tend to want. So that's uh, what people pay attention to. That's right. And in a way, it's a distraction almost because we don't have to have data to know that something's going very wrong with our socialization if we see our kids or ourselves spending so much time looking at a glass screen versus being out in nature. We, we know inherently there's something wrong with that. But I knew if I was going to make a business out of this or make a difference in the world, I would have to prove it. So that's what I did. So after 18 years uh, in corporate America, mainly on Wall Street, I uh, left and took a sabbatical and I went back to get my PhD to try to see if if there was something there. And um, the literature, the academic literature that people rely on for things to help them with understanding virtual teams and how to communicate and mediate in environments was, and to a large extent still is, very thin. It's very narrow because academics, I am one of them now, but bless their hearts, but they have to publish, right, in order not to perish, is the famous saying. And in order to do that, to get empirical data, you have to keep questions pretty narrow. So when I first started looking at the literature, I said to myself, I can't use this in corporate America. There's too many other things going on that would impact the result. So I started from ground zero, basically. I started my own research looking at the literature and, and using what I could. And say again what year this was, what time frame? This was, I went back in 2002. Okay, so still early so, on. I mean, we, we weren't using technology nearly as much. I mean, we didn't even have smartphones yet. No, we didn't have, the iPhone hadn't been released. iPad came out, I think, in 04. The iPhone was 07. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a BlackBerry, I think, at the time. So there were personal digital assistants or PDAs. Right, PDAs, yep. The Palm <laughs> and the BlackBerry. We're, the to- palm. we're yeah. totally aging ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really horrible. But anyway, but yeah, so it's over. It was 20 years ago, basically. And um, But we, we were using email a little bit more. And um, by that time, AOL had come out. So there were platforms and there were... Way before that, in the 90s, there were internal email systems. But as I said, I mean, they were nothing. They were so basic compared to what we have today. So fast forward, I I did discover that there was a measurable phenomenon called virtual distance, and it was counterintuitive. A lot of the things about virtual distance, as we'll talk about, um, are, are not on the top of people's minds today, people think that physical distance, geographic separation, spatial separation is is what's causing a lot of our issues. And while, of course, that is a problem, it's part of virtual distance, it's actually not the biggest uh, issue. But 
I came out uh, of school, started my company in 2004, actually, while I was still doing my PhD and um, thought that I'd go back to corporate America and just <laughs> consult, but have ended up following this as kind of a life's mission. I'm just imagining all of the changes that you have seen in those 16 or 17 years. It's really um, head spinning as you consider just what has happened since 2004 and the amount of time that we spend in front of, like you said, the, the glass screen. It's crazy. Virtual distance. I, I just kind of glazed over that term. What exactly does virtual distance mean? I know it has a very specific meaning for you and in your books. So maybe start by defining that. Yeah. So at a very high level, people can think of virtual distance as basically an unconscious sense of detachment, social and emotional detachment that starts to grow as we use more and more computer-mediated communications, meaning that there's a smart quote unquote, smart device in between us and the person that we're talking to. Um, and it, it shows up as changes in our behavior because we don't feel as close to people, but we may not realize that it's happening to us until we sort of get into examples. So for example, when we first discovered it, Dick Riley, my advisor, friend, co-author, and I thought once we named it, we said, well, we're only going to find it between people who are thousands of miles apart or hundreds of miles apart. But in the very beginning, we started seeing not only anecdotal information, but measurable information that there was virtual distance that was detectable between people who literally sat right next to each other. Because when you're looking and talking to a screen uh, and you're answering an email, let's say, you're somewhere else in your mind, you're just somewhere else. And you can't possibly know what the person on the other end is thinking, feeling, how they're gonna react. If you're reading what they wrote to you correctly, if you're mm -hmm. interpreting the meaning correctly, we're actually very bad at doing that as human beings. So we're actually using just our own framework, our own life experience to, to communicate. and. This is not good because <laughs> we're not taking into account the, the things that, that are important to other people and that help us understand what they really mean and vice versa. It's very, and they're doing the same thing on the other side. So virtual distance is sort of this um, fog that basically shows up in between people uh, because we're really not understanding that we have a lot of things in common and that we're socially people who, it's going to sound a little silly, but who deserve other people's respect and empathy and so forth, because we're not in environments where that's naturally coming through our conversations. Mm. So as you're speaking here, I'm, I'm imagining what I, I do, different consulting type work, and we would call this, you know, asynchronous communication. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the texting and the emailing that's not happening in real time. And even this morning, I was on the phone with a colleague clearing up some misunderstandings around texting. We just got completely upside down with each other in where we thought the confusion was. And we just finally said, let's just get on the phone. 
So texting and emailing is one thing. You and I, even right now, are looking at each other through video conferencing, through Zoom. Does this distance happen even when we're video conferencing? This It's synchronous, but we're still not in the room with each other, sitting next to each other, kind of shoulder to shoulder or truly eyeball to eyeball. Yeah. So there is some level of virtual distance happening. Um, Whether it's having a huge impact is another question, but we are living with the virtual distance. So for example, you're sitting in a room that has white walls and has some kind of plant behind you. I don't know if the plant is real, if it's not real, if it's alive or if it's plastic. (laughs) Um, But but these are the kinds of details that we normally would pick up automatically with mm-hmm. no effort at all if I was sitting in that space with you. I don't know how big your space is. We're just, we all just appear as tiny little boxes on a screen without any proportion, right? You, you don't know if right. I'm sitting in a closet or if I'm in a 10,000 square foot home. And when we're naturally, I'm calling them now traditional, you know, environments, which is what we've been in for 200,000 years as a species, pretty much, with the exception of telephone and Morse code and other kinds of things. But generally speaking, for 200,000 years, we've been working together in the same space. There are, are literally an infinite set of variables, things we're picking up in the environment that help us understand what someone else means, how they might be feeling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But video, while it allows us to see what we look like and maybe synchronize a little bit with conversation in terms of when you pause, when I pause, because you can see that I'm trying to say something and things like that, it doesn't really let you in on my worldview what I might be struggling with in my life that may be obvious, not just from my physical environment, but also from how I think about things, mm-hmm. how, how I come at things, the words I use or the gestures I use. I'm a New Yorker. I tend to talk with my hands a lot. So like if you see video of me presenting, I'm always like waving my hands <laughs> or using my hands. Um, and that's part of my sort of persona right? But you can't see my hands. Right. We lose a lot of context and we do pick up, I think, I can't remember who said this, but we're resonating creatures. We're we're built to resonate with each other. And so I'm not picking up those kind of, again, I don't, I don't feel your nervous system. I, I am not picking up those kinds of things. You're sitting instead of standing. And so you're not uh, gesturing like you normally would. I can see your bookcase. And as I said earlier, I'd love to just come over there and uh, <laughs> pick all those things up and read those books. But there is um, a lack of context, like you said, and proportion. So that's helpful uh, for me to think about. It's still synchronous and I can see you, but I'm still only seeing a very zoomed in picture of you. Right. And, and so that's right. So, so we use context a lot when we talk about virtual distance is a lack of shared context, but I would add to that, that it's, it's worse than we think because the 
the machine itself draws a lot of energy from us in order to even use it like this. So for example, um, the machine is backlit by, uh, all computers are backlit by a light bulb, right? That's flashing. And the screen is actually made up of thousands of little tiny boxes called pixels, right? But it's just one big giant grid. And the, the way you see things is through that grid and the light bulb flashing at something called a refresh rate, which is a rate that's fast enough for our brain not to be able to really detect it consciously. But we do detect it. And our brain is constantly overworking to not only stabilize what's on the screen, but the image I see of you. So that's exhausting, actually, if we're doing this all day. And we're also not meant, for example, to sit in front of a screen that's about 18 inches from our face. Our eyesight, our optic nerve, which is arguably one of the most important nerves into the brainstem, is meant to see things at a distance and peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. So all of our autonomic sort of nervous system, as well as our vestibular systems, the things that keep us balanced and looking around and sort of engaging with us as people are, are put to sleep because we don't need them. But it's a problem because our personhood is telling us there should be something else. So we're fighting this totally unconscious issue of our systems actually shutting down, but we have to maintain a certain level of energy to talk to each other. So people you hear all the time complain about how tired they are, right? And how exhausted they are. Zoom fatigue. I had a huge client in Silicon Valley call me early on telling me that his his employees were begging him, literally crying some of them on the phone to stop all these video meetings. It was, it was really emotionally upsetting, physically exhausting. So that's not just because we're not moving, which is another problem, and not resonating with each other in person, which is a huge problem because that helps us just find our ground together. But it's also literally a physical and emotional problem that we have just by trying to stabilize an image that's not really there and looking at something so close to us all the time that we're just shutting down all of our other capacities that we really are supposed to be using to be healthy. You know, I find that my mind is racing ahead to kind of the question, oh, so what do we do? And I also want to really honor your work around the measurable, the data that you did find, even if we don't spend a, a ton of time on it, because I really appreciate that you're moving more and more into, you know, the impact is how we can impact our human well-being and our mm -hmm. connections. So I don't want right. to spend a lot of time on the data, but this was your dissertation. And so I do want to hear like you have the three, the three components of virtual distance and that there's a ratio there that has changed a bit. But let's just spend some time on that because I think it's important. Sure. So at a high level, there are three components, as you mentioned, to virtual distance. The first is physical distance. These are the things that companies and educators and so on are the factors that are of most concern. So it's geographic separation in uh, corporate world, global corporate 
world, it's time zone separation, right? Are people, you know, a few time zones away? You and I are only one time zone away. It's not that much, but I'm talking to a very good friend of mine in Athens tomorrow, and she's seven hours ahead, you know, things like that. Um, and the extent to which we're affiliated with sort of the same or different organizations. Those are the fixed factors. They're fixed. You can't change them. Where I am is where I am. Where you are is where you are. And that's one component but it only really matters in terms of a situational circumstance where we really need to be in person and, and think about how to close down a physical type of distance in certain circumstances, as, as we've learned. The second component is what I call operational distance. So in essence, operational distance is comprised of a lot of sub-factors that have to do with the things that get in the way of fluid, meaningful interactions every day. And this is where a lack of shared context lives in these measures around okay. operational distance, as well as how we mix up the modes of communication that we use. Because actually, if we use different modes of communications on a regular basis, we actually can end up building a lot more context around people, even if we can't be with them. Um, and there's a whole set of metrics around that and recommendations on how to use that knowledge and information that we've gathered over these 15 years to, to mediate some of the stress on us of not being able to be together. And so by, by modes of communication, are you thinking of things like email, phone, video conferencing? Those are what you're talking about there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So picking up a phone versus talking via video versus texting versus email. There's actually benefits to all of them, um, but there are also detriments. So, so by shuffling them up appropriately, and there's a lot of equations we have and predictive measures that tell us what to do when, but the bottom line is they all result in the, in the natural benefit of when they're mixed up properly, we get a closer sense of somebody. And the third component, it, is something I call affinity distance. And affinity distance has the most impact on whatever outcomes you're looking for. And those outcomes could be anywhere, Leanne, from business outcomes like uh, profit and revenue, all the way to learning outcomes with your children because virtual distance lives everywhere, right? It lives in the home, it lives at work, it lives in communities and, and so on. And Basically, at the heart of affinity distance are those things that help us or work against us to build a very close sense of relationship, right? Mm -hmm. that, that I am really close enough to you to act on your behalf, that, that I will do something because I really respect you. I feel like we're really meant to be close with each other in terms of respectful and compassionate etc. So I will I will do things for you and you I trust will do things for me because of these affinity factors. Yeah, what you said trust and that was actually the word that kept coming up for me is that it feels like that um trust would live a lot in affinity not solely in that domain but that's where it really the trust gets deepened it seems is when the affinity um, component or element is really working well or being taken care of. Yeah, that's right. Although as human beings, we're not very good with our language. Our language doesn't really help us 
in all cases to sort of express the the nuance, the subtleties of all these things, because trust is a, a funny thing. You can have levels of trust that are in the academic literature called contractual trust, meaning mm-hmm. if I go to buy a car, I have to trust that the person selling it to me knows what he's talking about. And when I walk out, I have a car that does what he said it was going to do. But that's a very a very thin kind of trust, meaning kind of transactional. Yeah. Exactly, it it only matters kind of in that moment. Um, you might build more what's called affective trust in the academic literature, which is just that stronger, deeper sense of trust. But why it matters to your listeners is because in in companies, in learning, in classrooms, all over this world in homes, it's the closer trust, the affective trust that allows us to feel safe and able to be ourselves in ways that are important. So for example, in business, it's affective trust that allows us to share new ideas about a new innovation, right? If I start brainstorming, I have to really trust you because I'm exposing like what I'm thinking. And that takes a little bit of effort on my part. I don't want you to criticize me. You know, I don't want my idea shot down, (laughs) you know, things like that. Virtual distance is particularly impactful on innovation. And the flip side of innovation is actually critical problem solving, because you have to ask a lot of these same questions Mm -hmm. when you're trying to solve very hard problems. What's interesting about trust, this very deep sort of trust, which really is the is the thing that we need to lean on to get good results throughout our lives is that we have enough data now. We've used the same instrument to collect data from more than 55 countries, over 36 industry sectors, as well as schools and and other types of places, and over 1,400 cases. And, And what we know through the math is that basically high virtual distance is the equivalent, it's the statistical equivalent of not only low trust, but distrust. So if there's very high virtual distance, you get distrust. You don't trust other people. Hmm. But when you manage virtual distance and bring it down, which we can predictably do with specific techniques and prescriptions, trust turns into good trust and it also builds and you can get very strong trust, but you can't act on trust directly. So a lot of companies think, oh, you know, you can just do these exercises where they used to do them where you'd like fall backwards. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't do anything, right? Because trust has a lot of preconditions before we get to trust. And it turns out that what we discovered in virtual distance represent well the things that have to be low on virtual distance to actually create strong trust. And when you're saying low and high virtual distance, you actually have a formula that you've created that result in a score. Like, will a company be able to score itself and it comes up with a high or low score in, in virtual distance? Yes. So thanks for pointing that out, Leanne, because I realize I'm sort of using technical terms that the listener might not, you know. Well, it's 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 sort of intuitive, but I I think now's a good time for you to talk as well about the ratio between physical, operational, and affinity. Yeah. Yeah. So to get back to your first question, though, yes. So we have this online assessment. It takes 15 minutes. 
and people answer some questions. But behind that, we're running algorithms and you know analytics, and we come up with a virtual distance index score, um, which is in virtual distance units. So just technically, that's <laughs> that's what they there. The score is kind of uh, a categorization, right? That, that we made up, but is real in terms of numbers. Um, and people get reports and they can see if they're high, meaning higher virtual distance or low, meaning lower virtual distance. And by the way, virtual distance is not good. It's not bad. It's just here. Like it's just here. So I tell clients and families all the time that it's just part of the ether now. Mm-hmm. So we just, it's not that it's, if you have high virtual distance, not necessarily bad. It's just you want to recognize that it's there and try to reduce it. And again, it seems like it's contextual. It depends on the relationship and what you're wanting from that particular relationship. So if you're a, an organization that is wanting certain outcomes, then a high virtual distance may mean not being able to reach those outcomes. Am I summarizing that? That's absolutely correct. So we also, we don't only measure virtual distance because as an analytic person, as I mentioned earlier, I needed to go back and say whether it was affecting anything. So we also measure 10 outcomes, things like job satisfaction, employee engagement, et cetera, and innovation and revenue increases or decreases and things like that. So, so we do measure very tangible um, outcomes. And when virtual distance is high, it usually has a negative relationship. So if it's high, then you get lower trust and distrust, lower, you know, job satisfaction, lower employee engagement, et cetera. Um, But back to your question about the ratio, I think for the listeners, what's important to know is that these things impact those outcomes in different proportions. So physical distance before COVID was only half as important to those outcomes as operational distance, right? So operational distance has double the effect on those outcomes. And affinity distance has four times the amount of impact than physical distance and twice as much as operational distance. So the ratio is one, two, four. One is physical distance, two is the impact operational distance has, and four is the impact affinity distance has. So we can actually put a formula together and plug in that number and know what the score is going to be like on employee engagement, for example, in the business world. And what's important about that is headline after headline after headline ad nauseum, in my opinion, (laughs) you know, keeps talking about whether or not we should go back into an office or remain remote forever and so on and so forth. And there are two comments I have about that. One is we were all taught early in our careers, you never make really big decisions in the middle of a crisis. It's not a good time to decide whether or not to do X, Y, or Z forever, right? Or if you yep. get a- angry, right? If you're in an agitated state, which is w- what we're in right now, we really shouldn't be making these sweeping decisions about how we work. We don't know yet what the ultimate sort of fallout of this is going to be. And people are psychologically exhausted, emotionally tired, 
very stressed. Um, they Lonely may and isolated. I mean, that's exactly. Huge. Yeah, it's really exactly. Disconnected. They're completely disconnected. And virtual distance is a measure of that in essence as well. So it's, it's the sense of separation. So that includes isolation before COVID. And what we talked about earlier before this podcast was that's turned into something called extreme virtual distance because we're at a radical level of isol- isolation, right? When, if you worked from your house, which I've done for many years, when I turned off the computer, I could go outside, shake hands with my neighbor, go to the gym, hug somebody I hadn't seen in a long time. In other words, there was a world out there in which I could extend all of my humanness into and be okay. But we can't do that now. Mm -hmm. So it's extreme isolation. It's not just any kind of isolation. It's almost like being in an isolation chamber. I was going to say, it's almost like torture. This would be a good way to torture a civilization is to do exactly what we're doing. That's right. And I'm actually, I, I wrote a paper about this many years ago, and I'm, I'm bringing that paper back mm. as an essay because the best academic literature about what's happening to us is actually in the torture literature. Oh, my God. Um, because it, it, there's a whole big thing, but <laughs> it, it, the bottom line is it, the worst thing you can do to a human being is, is put them into an isolated situation. It, it's just, it, it's before food, before water, we need each other. And then if we're with someone else, it's easier for us to find food, find water <laughs> and, <laughs> and to be okay and to feel okay. Um, so anyway, and there's lots of evidence in this in many different places. I so, don't think anybody would argue with that. You know, just even, I'm not a scientist, uh, but I'm a human being, and it <laughs> right. even I I wouldn't argue with what you just said. In fact, when you started describing it, it the first word that came to me was torture. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's hmm. it's it's very significant. And um, I did the, my original paper because of VR technology. Um, when you put on a virtual reality headset, you're literally creating the exact same conditions that someone would use to torture someone in an illegal way. Um, by cutting off all of their senses, our natural senses, um, and also pounding us with imagery and sound that's very loud. That's actually, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Clockwork Orange, which was before my time, but I remember the movie. If you remember the, the main character in there is sort of reprogrammed by sitting in a room with incredibly loud noise and, and seeing this vivid imagery over and over and over, that's how you brainwash someone, actually. That's how you erase sort of what people understand and put back what you want them to think about the world. So it's a form of torture. So I'm not saying that we're in a state of that kind of deprivation exactly, but our human spirit, what comes alive every morning when we wake up every night when we dream knows that this is really not good for us Hmm. and whether we're aware of it or not you know we can see in the numbers rates of depression are going up suicide especially among young people because they're in their sort of coming of life years Mm -hmm. um and this is when they're supposed to be highly socializing reproducing even, you know, I mean, if you go back to just pure biology and things like this, this is when they're supposed to be really close to each other. So getting back to 
probably your listeners' areas of interest, this is all contributing, Leanne, to how we come to the screen. Talk about context. We are all sharing this context. So that's one thing leaders need to understand is to lean into the crisis and talk about it and discuss it and make room for that discussion in business so that people can share whatever it is they can over online means. But before we even start our day, we are stressed to the max with a sense of feeling very alone. If we have young children, women feel a lot of guilt that they're not paying enough attention and teaching them enough. If people are financially affected by the global economic crisis, they're worried about whether they can pay bills. They may be sick. They may have lost loved ones already to COVID. And that's what they're sitting down first thing in the morning with their coffee with. So I think that I, I know we're kind of off the subject, but I think virtual distance is a way to corral our thoughts around us as human beings first and give us a framework to kind of work off of, even though that's not what it was originally designed for. It still works and and help people to not only lower what was already there, but lower virtual distance in a way that they can really share their human experience with each other. And that will make way for better work. This almost feels like an unfair question because we're in such an extreme situation here, but how do we lower that score these days? And I'm assuming it's more affinity. And as the vaccines come online and the numbers go down, we'll be able to physically be with each other more in the next several months as well. But again, for the folks listening, mostly business audience, what can we be doing right now while we're still in the middle of this? Yeah, that's a good question. So <laughs> no, it feels like it feels unfair because if anybody had, you know, a magic wand, we would have done something 6 months ago or 8 months ago. It's it's tough. Yeah. There's a lot that can be done about it. I'm going to preclude my remarks by saying that, unfortunately, when we use our business head instead of our human heart to think about how to lead, we overlook virtual distance. We overlook the the human things that need to be done. And, And this is not to be judgmental about leaders or whatever, but it's just a fact. We've bifurcated in many ways our approach to business and, you know, being very, you know, sort of, okay, X goes to Y and blah, blah, blah. And we've lost, I think, over time, especially in the virtual world, sort of a more heartfelt way to at least ground to start from, Mm -hmm. I, I think is a better way to put it. So the first thing the listeners need to understand, and I think they do, I I think this resonates with a lot of people, is we have to become aware that this is really happening to people and internalize that more. Because if we just, and I've had clients who've just brushed this off, meaning they don't even want to deal with it. So it's Mm -hmm. just sort of, okay, just get on video and keep working, you know, and I understand where they're coming from, but the problem is they're not going to 
ultimately end up with good results or the best results they could. Um, I have other clients who have tried to introduce virtual distance into their organizations, but they get a lot of pushback because executives often feel like they lose control if they work on a heartfelt level first. Hmm. And it's, it's again, it's, it's not saying anything bad about these executives. We've developed very bad habits of human behavior in working together over a hundred years or more in terms of what good quote management and leadership is versus other types of behavior. We've developed very bad habits. I'm starting to see that change. Well, I hope I see that because that's what I focused on is you might call it conscious leadership, but bringing that more human oriented. I was just on a call half a day today where we were practicing active listening, not just listening to hear, but to get to the bottom of what someone cares about, what's their why. So I don't know if that counts for you as kind of turning that tide instead of just being transactional to really care and show care. And as you said, dignity and respect, dignity is a a huge word for me but just finding ways that we actually relate with each other in those ways. And uh, is that, does that turn the corner for you or start turning that corner in how, what leaders can be doing differently? Yeah. So that's actually a great practice, right? Leanne, you're doing your clients a huge service by helping them to develop active listening skills and, other things that get to the why, the purpose, the meaning of work, uh, and and that can be very effective. Um, there are two things I would add to that that we need to sort of bring to the surface and just deal with. The first is motive, right? What is someone's motive coming to these conversations, these consultations? If the motive is really heartfelt, which I have talked to hundreds of people in 2020 and before who have incredibly big hearts and and the motive is very, very sincere and authentic. And so you can reduce virtual distance with people like that very quickly because they understand that there is a human connection or pieces of human connection that we can restore in a virtual world. Uh, and should be restored if we're to have sort of ethically grounded and and moral Hmm. relationships with each other. Hmm. And I'm, again, I'm nobody's judge or jury. I'm just saying in, in contemplative language, that's the language that they would use. But I have also been on calls with senior executives, CEOs of big companies or their sort of lieutenants, one level down or two, who have expressed to me that they're worried that the company doesn't have the stamina. One one client used this word the day before yesterday. He's concerned that they don't have the stamina to sort of see this through and want to get back to sort of business as usual to keep going. And again, this is not a company that's run by malevolent people. It's just we have as executives looking for quarterly profits and gains and, and so on and so forth. We've just developed bad habits and forgot that it's not just the number on a balance sheet that counts. It, it really is the, the people. And that kind of sounds trite and I don't mean it to be, but it, it is the way the reflexive action 
comes out in many executives. So just to close this, this segment, what you asked me how you address it. The first thing you have to address is the fact that it's really there, that people are really in need of leadership and some help on a human level. And the best way to control your future business trajectory is to open up your heart. Hmm. I just got chills. <laughs> that, I know that's true. I've seen it a million times. And as a person, as a mother, as a wife, as part of a, a, a friend circle that I care a great deal about, I also just know it's true as a person. I know that's true. Mm. But we don't stop to sort of look at it that way enough, in my opinion, and with regard to how long this is going to last, yes, there's a lot of hope and a lot of reasons to be optimistic about being able to get back together and hug each other without the danger that we are under right now. But I've also been in pandemic simulation work that shows that there's a lot between now and then. Let's mm -hmm. just put it that way. And we're people right now are psychologically retreating from other people because we have to, to stay safe and healthy. But that habit is going to take a while to break. Yes, boy, we've been in a daily practice now for a year. That's right. And I have not thought of it that way, but we've been practicing this for a year now and we'll get really good at anything that we practice this much. Exactly. So this is something, again, that people don't really think about, but as leaders, we should be planning for it. We should be thinking through this and saying, okay, we're actually going to have to help people come out of their shell and feel more comfortable being exposed to other people, again, as long as it's scientifically safe and healthy mm -hmm. to do that. But we may actually see new types of training just to help people <laughs> right. relearn how to hold each other's hand or not recoil when someone comes near them because- we're very adaptive. <laughs> That's what we do. We're adapting to stay alive and to stay safe, but we're sort of maladapting to human social contact. Yeah. I even think it's just having a mask on everywhere and how that has changed how I relate with people in a grocery store. There's very little interaction anymore uh, because we're staying away from each other. We're not seeing each other's facial expressions. There's very little small talk, you know, standing at the produce. And you're right, that developing even uh, an, a sense of ease with that kind of um, co-location with people, that distance or lack of distance is going to be difficult. Uh, I imagine that I'll be keeping six feet away from people for a long time. That's right. Ugh. That's right. And so that's what gives me the chills. That's what keeps me up at night. I mean, I can and look forward to working every day with my clients to reduce virtual distance, given the situation, understanding how that works. Again, what the detail behind what I do is very predictive. I know these solutions work. We have evidence of it for 15 years. But what keeps me up at night is what's next? How do we feel comfortable with each other as we have for 200,000 years in general when we're actually together and there is no threat? 
Well, here's my hope, and maybe this is something that we can start closing the conversation with today. My hope is that 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 200,000 years of conditioning and living is going to override one year of social distancing and that we will be aware and can start new practices. You know, I think even just raising awareness that this is likely to happen and that making a conscious effort that as soon as we can, when we go back into the grocery store or whatever, uh, you know, snuggle up to people <laughs> in, the, in the produce section and and emote. Because I, what I'm hoping, Karen, is that that 200,000 years, those those connections are way deeper and way longer than this one year, but that we're going to have to be aware of that and, and push ourselves into what may feel uncomfortable in the beginning, but that that we can overcome it. We, we, can, we can go back to uh, being shoulder to shoulder with people again. Yeah, I, I share your optimism. I, I'm not sure what the timeline looks mm-hmm. like, right? Because we just don't know. But what I used to tell my students who would be worried about climate change and very real threats and what they do about that and if the human species will survive, things like that, I think is informs my thinking today, which is that the human spirit will always find a way to fight for its survival. Mm. And part of our human spirit is emoting a, an enormous amount of compassion and love and joy to be together with other people. And so I believe that those gestures and that hand-to-hand feelings with each other will be trusted in the future eventually, again, because the human spirit will show up yeah, and it'll demand it. That's right. It will say, no, you have to hug this person. And that's who we are or hold their hand or comfort, you know, stroke my daughter's hair if she's not feeling well that day. Or I mean, she's in my pod, but, you know, <laughs> right. it, it, you know, whatever it is, because I, I, I believe that the time horizon is the only thing I think that I think that's a big part of it. I also think it's not just companies alone. It's not just families alone. It's not just government agencies alone. It has to be the society deciding that that's the direction we want to go back to, uh, one of peaceful, compassionate living and being with each other. Because a lot of different things have to realign in order to sort of smoothly make that happen um, on, a, on a larger scale. So I... I, but I agree. I'm generally a very optimistic person. I believe that the human being is the most amazing (laughs) creature on earth and that love and joy and compassion. I keep saying that over and over, but I really do think those three things do rule us in many ways. So if we can just sort of keep that in mind, hopefully the level of distress we're feeling right now and virtual distance that's growing can be lessened a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I'm uh, really appreciating about you, Karen, is that how you came into this by, what do you say, applied mathematics and computer science, 
all the way here and to, you know, to hear you speaking about love and compassion and the human spirits and, and your facility around talking about numbers and data and, and, and proof as well. It's such a beautiful whole picture that it feels really integrated and whole to me. And I just want to say how much I appreciate that and what you're bringing uh, to the world. Well, thank you, Leanne. I, I really appreciate this time with you as well. And uh, I hope your listeners uh, <laughs> have gotten something out of it. Well, and I want to say too, so you've got your latest book is The Power of Virtual Distance. You have a consulting organization, a consulting company, uh, and would you name that for me as well? And I'll also put links to all of this in the show notes today. Yes. So my company's name is Virtual Distance International. It's easy to remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we do everything from executive advisory work to high-level consulting to workshops and other types of training and certifications to help people understand how how to work with all of this. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I've also found some really insightful articles on your LinkedIn page. And so I'll also link to that. That was really helpful for me to read some of the things that you've written uh, before we got on the call today. It's always evolving based on what's going on in the world. So thank you again, talking to you. You're in uh, Long Island or New York, somewhere up there. And I hope that you are staying warm and safe. And I really, really appreciate our time together today. Me too. Thanks again, Leanne. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on your preferred podcast platform. Your ratings, reviews, and shares are also really appreciated. You can also visit rise-leaders.com for all the resources we talked about today and to work with me if you're committed to making your unique and positive impact. Thank you for listening and remember, elevate your part of the world. Mm